and welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 49. Today we'll be talking about episode 5 of season 3, Different Destinations. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of different destinations. As the crew waits for Pilot to fix something on Moya, they visit a peace memorial. Thinking it will be soothing for Stark to see a moment of peace, John puts a mask on his head that lets him see through a tear in time into the past when a group of nurses were given mercy after a grueling battle. Unfortunately, the mask interacts with Stark's abilities and the crew is sent back in time. They try to make peace without changing the past. So I think this is our first time travel episode since Back and Back and Back to the Future in Season 1. And it's also a war story and a western. And all these tropes work really well together. This is probably one of my favorite eps of early Season 3. And I think one of the reasons that I like it so much is that it's also a tragedy. Everything John does trying to put the timeline back on track leads to disaster, even though all he's trying to do is prevent a disaster from happening. Yeah, you have to feel sorry for everybody involved because they're hyper aware of all of the tropes surrounding time travel. (laughs) It's actually really funny because early on they have this like hilarious battle and they've just agreed that they can't kill anybody in this timeline. So, like, John, you know, Dargo's, like, swinging his cult blade. And John's like, don't kill anybody. And Dargo's like, well, I'm not going to kill anybody. Except maybe this guy. And, like, John is, like, hitting people. And he's like, sorry, sorry, don't die, don't die. You know? And yeah. so the episode does a really good job of lampshading some of the tropes that you come to expect with real-time travel episodes versus Groundhog Day, which is what back and back and back to the future was. So yeah, it's a really good episode, even though it ends in tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I love that the exposition at the beginning about what happened is like Aaron saying, yes, John, I know I'm not stupid. (laughs) We we know we can't. We know we have the grandfather paradox going on here. So the Peace Memorial is set up on in the present on this cliff. In the past, it was actually just a fortress on this, this plain. And these nurses are holed up in this monastery and they have a very small contingent of peacekeepers protecting them and they're defending against this horde of Venex, who are another race on the planet who want control of it. And we find out later that there's real reasons that they want control of this mountain, namely resources because they need the water that's coming from it. In the history for the peacekeepers, this is the site of one of their greatest achievements where they had one soldier who was remaining who was able to broker this peace he died for it, but then the Venix gave amnesty to the nurses and let them live. And so that's what the peace memorial is in the present. But by going to the past, obviously the presence of John, Aaron, and Dargo changes the course of history. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is really great about it is Aaron is the one who picks up almost the fastest of how to blend in to the the monastery and the times that they're in by claiming that they're peacekeeper reinforcements. And when mm-hmm. the commander comes in, Officer Tarn, she's the one who's like, yes, this is off- I'm Officer Sun, this is Sub-Officer Crichton, Dargo's a mercenary, we're here to help. Mm-hmm. And then they try to help, and it doesn't work out so great. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, because I mean, and that's actually one of the things that they lampshade pretty early on is John's like, well, we can't change anything. Like our goal is to not change anything. And Aaron's kind of like, well, we could make it better. And John like looks at her and he's like, since when do we ever make anything better? (laughs) And I'm like, that is valid, John. That is a good point. But the other thing I wanted to mention before we get started is that so Jewel, it's the people down on the planet are Jewel, John, Dargo, Stark, and Aaron. And I, I agree that last episode, I was kind of down on Jewel. But I think you're right that adding Jewel to the cast kind of makes it so that we can have these like shifting groups of four and five characters that really does mix up how the characters interact with each other. Like this episode pretty much opens on Jewel and Aaron. One of the opening bits is Jewel and Aaron arguing over the peacekeepers. And Aaron's like, this is the site of one of our best, one of our greatest victories. You know, we brokered peace and sub-officer Dakin is a hero and blah, blah, blah. And Jewel is kind of like, yeah, sure. Like that's not all peacekeeper propaganda. And the funny thing is, is as a viewer, you really want Aaron to be right because she's your favorite character. But then logically you understand that Jewel is probably the one that is correct on this. Yeah. Yeah, and then Jewel is borne out when they actually go back and see the history. Actually, I, like I mean, Aaron's you... pretty borne out when they go out and see the history, I think. What, that he's a hero? Well, that it is a moment of heroics for the peacekeepers because Jewel is kind of like, you know, they probably massacred everybody. It was probably actually just a big battle and everything ended badly. And initially, that's what I thought it was going to be, was that it was like the peacekeepers were doing something really Mm. bad in the past. But it does turn out that he is a hero. Aaron kind of sees this, and I'll get a little more into it once we meet Officer Dacon, but I really think that this is a moment when Aaron's faith in the peacekeepers is kind of borne out. Okay, from that perspective, yes, that I think that's all that's all true. But at the same time, the actual history of it is nothing like Aaron expects because Dacon <laughs> has been been built up through history as this great hero. He's like killed twelve people by himself. He did all these things that are like superhuman. Like he's a superhero kind of mentality around him because he is like the sole person who saved these nuns even though he died in the process but when she meets him he's this scrawny yeah he looks like he's 12 he looks like he's 12 years old and he's not a soldier he's the cook you know and he's like none of the things that she expects about him are true and mm-hmm. so from that perspective, you have Jewel being right that it was propaganda. Like they took this kid who died probably rather randomly. And it reminded me a little bit of Saving Private Ryan. Like, mm. you know, all the deaths in Saving Private Ryan of the squad, some of them are completely inglorious. And they're just like bad luck and, and crappy. And, and that's kind of how this kind of felt to me, where the reality of it was so much dirtier and non-glorious than Aaron wanted it to believe. No, yeah. Aaron wanted to believe it was. Yeah. Well, let's actually get into the episode because I have some feelings comparing Aaron meeting her two heroes or two of her heroes. <laughs> so let's go back. The episode opens on them all down at the Peace Memorial. Dargo's really pissy because poor Dargo has had like a really rough few days. You know, he lost his girlfriend to his son. He lost Zan to death and you do kind of feel bad for him. Mm-hmm. Well, they're all mourning Zan. Yeah, I mean, they... that's part of why they're there. Stark is a bit of a mess. Stark is a real mess. <laughs> <laughs> he like 
John is trying to give him this mask so that he can see into the past and see the piece, like the piece. And it's so funny. He's like looking at his clothes and he's like, Zan bought me these for me to yeah. wear. And they're like, uh, yeah, yeah dude. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it feels like Stark's like dissociating, you know, I'm maybe not dissociating, but just like his head is not where everyone else is. Like he is not down there on the planet with them, even though mm-hmm. he physically is. He, he is constantly thinking about Zan. And I think one of the things he says is like, he can't hear her anymore. Like she is yeah. fully passed on to the next, to the next realm or whatever happens with death that he is in tune with. And he's really feeling that loss of her presence. Oh, yeah. It's it's hard for him. And like later he has this like I forget the context. I was trying to remember it, but he has like this weird sing song tune that he says, well, as Zan always said, and he has like this like rhyme. And I was like, none of those words have ever come out of Zan's mouth. <laughs> He's uh, trying to make everything better and doing what you can. Yeah. You know, and then he does like a goddess hand motion. That's kind of cartoony. Even, you know, it's. I don't mm-hmm. know. Poor Stark. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's the other thing about this tragedy, though, is like they just lost Zan. This is the immediate aftermath episode. And then more bad things happen. And I think that's the other really tragic part of this episode is there's like no uplifting moment. There's no hope. There's just more death and destruction at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. This is an interesting follow-up episode to Zan's death. It's a hard episode as a follow-up because it's in some ways very parallel to her death in terms of the randomness of fate. And Mm -hmm. and the sacrifice required. And And the sacrifice required, yeah. Well, and also just the the randomness of the Moya Cruz lives, you know, Mm -hmm. that even when they are trying their very best to do good, they just can't get it right you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah so john does put the mask on stark and so the way this terran time works is it it's looking back at both the peace process when the the nurses surrender and also previous to that so when the battle happened so if someone looking through this mask can kind of look at all parts of this event that happened and Stark, when he puts it on, just happens to see one of the battle scenes and it freaks him out because he is really sensitive to death, obviously, and he interacts with his Stykira abilities, you know, the, his, the glowing light out of the, his mask face, and he ends up sending them all back in time where Jewel immediately gets shot with an arrow through the arm. And she's screaming, there's fighting <laughs> going on all around them, there's these arrows that are exploding. John, Aaron, and Dario kind of immediately realize something's going on and have this rush conversation about grandfather paradoxes and what to do about it. So they're thrown right in the middle of a battle. And in the aftermath of it, they now have to pretend to be peacekeeper reinforcements. Mm -hmm. Two immediate things that happen is Dargo takes Stark to try and find the tear. And they are able to see the tear and Jewel gets patched up by one of the nurses and then she gets sent back through. So Jewel pretty much almost immediately goes back into the present to tell Chiana and Pilot what's going on. I want to point out though, before she does, the nurses patch her up and it's hilarious. They give her like this drink to numb the pain. And it's so funny because it turns <laughs> out she's drinking Phoenix piss. And so she's like super high and Dargo's like, Stark, tell me where the tear is. And Stark is like, ah, it's kind of over there. And Jewel is like looking and she's like, I see it too. It's right there. It's shiny. And she's like not wearing a mask or anything it's so funny yeah 
Yeah, it's pretty great. Jewel high. And then it comes back around later when she's back on, on Moya. So then we get Aaron meeting Dacon for the first time, really. There's this lull, obviously, after the battle, and the nurses are patching everyone up, and Aaron has a chance to talk with Dacon. So I'm going to play that first conversation where she finds out a little bit more about him. Dacon, have you been a soldier long? Were you talking to Officer Tan? No, it's just that I once heard you killed a dozen Venex when they breached the snack wall. Me? Mm. Did you not also save the nurse's convoy? No. Officer Tan did all that. He was a very noble man. He always gave credit away. He, uh... Get down! Oh. This? <laughs> the snipers might see it. Who am I kidding? I'm not a soldier. I was attached to this unit as comm supervisor and sustenance preparer. You were the cook? Yeah. And with everyone getting killed, I was terrified I was going to be ranking officer. I'm so glad you turned up. Um, no. Uh, Dakin, you know the engagement better than I do. You have to be the- I'm a cook. You gotta take over. And you can see on Aaron's face, like, all her illusions about him being just completely dashed because mm -hmm. here's this person who is supposed to be a hero and she's the more experienced soldier mm -hmm. and she doesn't want to believe it at this point that that's true but it's you know as we said he looks 12 years old <laughs> yeah he's like 12 well i think she also is trying is doing that to try not to change anything you know she doesn't oh, yeah. want to be in charge because if she's in charge then that means she's making decisions that technically only the people that should be in the past should be making. I really like this conversation for a couple of reasons because the whole beginning really reminded me a lot of Durka Returns mm -hmm. because in Durka Returns, she meets up with Durka and she's like so excited and she's like, oh my gosh, we learned all about your battle in, in military school. You did this and you did this and it was amazing. And Durka's like, oh yes, but I am past that now. I am peaceful. And it was kind of like that shattering of her of her illusions about Durka over the course of that episode in a really negative way. Because mm -hmm. I, I feel like season one was all about her having to handle peacekeepers not being the glorious things that she thought they were. Mm -hmm. And here, I just really enjoy that like she's meeting this kid and he's not what she expected and she's not what he wanted, but she's in such a different place now that instead of that like completely shattering her her feelings about him I feel like it kind of makes her feel more protective towards him because now yeah. she's not coming at it from a perspective of like oh you aren't the great military person I thought you were I hate you she's coming at it more from the perspective of history is complicated and this is really sad that this child is gonna die yeah that's I think that's definitely true that she's coming from it from a different place Aaron's perspective on the peacekeepers here really reminded me a lot of PK Tech Girl when mm -hmm. they're in that big cavernous room and and John's saying, you know, like all the great things you could do as peacekeepers and, and but Aaron really does have this this view of the peacekeepers of and as a force for good in the universe that yes, that part of it through her journeys with Moya and the realities that she's lived through has changed a lot, but there's still that ideal that she has in her heart. Cause I think Aaron is at heart an idealist. She wants to believe in the better and the good things that the peacekeepers can do and the, in the way that they can make the universe a better place. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that comes up again in this episode with with Dagan. And, and she does really feel protective of him. Like, I really like that you saying that, pointing that out, because it's so true. She wants him to live at the end of this. Like, she one she thing she wants to do is make the world a better place and in a better place this kid who's a cook who didn't sign up to be a soldier mm-hmm. lives he doesn't die this tragic death yeah and so i think that it's interesting kind of her perspective on the past versus john's because so now they've finished this battle and john has realized that one of their captives is the general and Aaron and I don't think he tells anybody which is no like, he doesn't which is the whole problem and that's another tragic reason right yeah you know it's like Romeo and Juliet yeah <laughs> you know, they don't tell each you know they they miss the the stupid FedEx package in the mm-hmm. version I like the best oh so. yeah Boslerman is the best yeah but so yeah I, I actually agree that's a good that's apt and also I just kind of think that hubris in a lot of ways like it's John thinking that he can outsmart time John can Mm -hmm. outsmart everybody and John doesn't have to tell anybody anything. They all kind of get together post battle and they're like, okay, like, what do we have to do? We have to broker this piece, but now it's complicated. And John's like, well, I have an idea of how to do it. And Aaron's like, well, I have another idea and it's called, you know, killing everybody until we have, you know, until we have a stalemate and then we can have peace. Right. Because the peacekeeper pulse weapons of the unit that's there are being jammed by the Venix. Mm -hmm. But the modern ones that Aaron and John carry are not jammed because they're a different frequency. So they actually, it's one of those cases of where they have brought superior weaponry with them back into the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the other interesting thing about it is that so now they have this moment because they've just kind of fought off the battle a little bit. And so now they have this moment of peace. And Aaron and Dacon have another conversation that I want to play because this isn't if her illusions about her hero had been shattered in their first conversation when she was like, you're a cook. Okay, (laughs) not sure what to do with that. Then here you really begin to see her development of feelings about the past and about her heroes. Dacon, slowly take your finger off the trigger and point the weapon away from both of us. Those recruitment hollow chips never said anything about this. About what? Fighting with primitive weapons? Dying. Knowing you're going to die. Having time to think about it. Well, as a soldier, you don't think about it. I'm a cook. I like to think about food. Why did you join up? I didn't. You were born into service. Aboard a command carrier. No wonder you're fearless. No. It's easy to be fearless around here. This is what peacekeepers are meant to do, help the defenseless. You'll be fine. Aw. I think that that moment when she said, this is what peacekeepers are meant to do, is really like at the core kernel Mm -hmm. of, of who Aaron is now. Do you know what I mean? Because like, if we've talked in the past about the core of Rigel being like, I am a dominar, then I think the core of Aaron is like, peacekeepers don't have to be evil. You know what I mean? Which means that she doesn't have, she wasn't born evil. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that idealism of they're meant to help people, so mm-hmm. she's going to help people as much as she can in their circumstances that they have. Yeah, I think that is true about the core of who Aaron is and, and what motivates her, especially here where she's kind of, as a, I don't know, it's like a mentor situation with Dacon where she's like, okay, <laughs> you're pointing a loaded weapon at us. Stop now. <laughs> you know, and, you know, trying to comfort him with like, some little bit of advice about being a soldier and soldiers don't think about the fear and the death and the death that awaits them because you can't you can't Mm -hmm. function like that and so i really like that relationship that's developing between the two of them because you don't often see aaron with the mentoring relationship Mm -hmm. with anyone else yeah that's true well i think that and in the past when she has done anything i'm trying to think has she ever had like a similar mentoring or teaching relationship i feel like she has but i can't remember when um i could say that that with jelena there's a little bit of that Mm -hmm. from pk tech girl where she's like you know you don't want to lose your place with the peacekeepers Mm -hmm. it is devastating there's a little bit of that there but otherwise her main relationships are with pilot and john and and dargo and with them she's more Mm -hmm. of a partner and a friend you know there's there's parody in their Mm -hmm. relationships but I got to say, like watching her interact with Dakin and actually essentially be in command while they are there with like, as far as the nurses are concerned, she is in command. She's the one who actually makes the decisions about what happens with John, you know, all those things. Mm-hmm. You know, she would make a kick-ass commander. Oh, yeah. I mean, doubtless. <laughs> I mean, it's just so much fun to watch. Oh, so much fun. Well, and I think that the fact that her career was on pause really must have been just due to the fact that her that Crace wasn't really paying attention mm-hmm. do you know what i mean yeah that, like he wasn't really paying attention to the subordinate he had under her him yeah and i think also part of that in the peacekeepers is she's she was one amongst many and content to be there kind of lost in the shuffle and also yes she was somewhat ambitious like applying for a marauder crew but mm-hmm. she was never in the situation where she is with moya where she is part of a very small unit you know mm-hmm. that is responsible for thinking fast, thinking on their feet, fixing problems, having more than one skill set. Like she has grown so much from the peacekeeper that she used to be into a person who could be a really awesome commander now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for certain. So Dargo and the main nurse that we see, pretty much the only nurse that talks, they have an interesting conversation because they're sitting there and she is talking to him about if the horde wins. And I think that this is kind of when I began to wonder because as viewers, you're kind of supposed to see like, oh, the poor helpless nurses and they're so, you know, they're so innocent and helpless, blah, blah, blah. But then she hits him with some pretty racist kind of talk, you know, where she's like, well, the horde, they're monsters, they're violent. And if they win, and the kind of implication is that they're going to do something really gross to her daughter. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, if, if they if they win, I want you to kill my daughter, essentially, before they can get her. And that was kind of for me as a viewer when I was like, how, how much of the hatred of the Horde is deserved? And how much of it is just racism? Because they never really say what species they are. But I guess Sebastian lookalikes on the planet. Yeah, but they seem to live a lot longer. Yeah. And then the Horde is like, very animal to have like a cat face almost Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know that one didn't strike me so much except for like being very common language of war Mm. you know you have two sides of a conflict and your immediate response and how you cope with a lot of that is by othering your enemy so it's Mm -hmm. like it's okay to kill them because they're barbarians and it's okay to 
to treat them poorly because they're trying to kill you. And all these myths that kind of bubble up, like they say that they're what they do to children is going to be horrible. And whether it's rape or desecration or torture or whatever, we don't know. She never specifies, but it's left to the imagination. So it struck me much more of the language of war, which doesn't necessarily negate your point because wars grow out of other kinds of conflict that arise, right? And this one's Mm -hmm. a resource issue. About this time, John is talking with the general who basically is saying, well, the reason we're attacking this mountain is because the river's gone dry. We need water. The source of the river is here. And, you know, the implication I get from that that's not said outright is that they can't ask for help from the other population. Like there is some barrier, there's some diplomatic barrier or whatever that they cannot ask for help. They are in conflict already and they don't have a way to ask for help in a constructive way. And then the general says like, I can't control the horde and they're going to attack. So it, it feels like on the one hand, there's this reputation of barbarism that the general recognizes and then there's also the fact that it's in play culturally with, with the with the horde itself that, you know, he has a very tenuous control over his own people. Mm-hmm. So what is the truth and what is exaggeration? You know, it's kind of one of those situations. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that the water thing that you're getting at, I think the general actually says that the cities, because there's like two cities or something that are between the source of the water and then the plains where the horde lives. And I think the implication is that the cities have actually like damned it or they're just using more than their fair share of the water. Yeah. Because it is to the point because the implication is that it is definitely the other population's fault that there is no water left. Yeah. Yeah. Also, during that conversation with the nurse, the Dargo is like, oh, so were the peacekeepers hired to take care of your civilization? And she's like, yeah, yeah, we hired them. They're great. Aren't peacekeepers the best? They're <laughs> everything that is good about the universe. And Dargo's and like, <laughs> I have like things in my collarbones to keep me chained up from the peacekeepers. <laughs> So meanwhile, I just want to kind of do a meanwhile because they are making changes to the planet because initially, as soon as they've finished that battle and they have captured the general, it flashes back to Moya and pilots like, hey, Chiana, something weird just kind of happened. Initially, when we were down here, the messages were in such and such language and then now they're in Venic. <laughs> so yeah, Something's that's kind of weird. going on. Yeah. And every time Stark has looked through the tear, pretty much since I've gotten there, he just keeps screaming about how much death it is. Yeah. And essentially every time they make any decision, even ones that seem minor, it flashes back to Moya and things get worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Like first it was just pilots like, hmm, it looked like there was a giant battle down there. And then he's like... Hmm, it looked like millions died. And then he was 500 years ago. And then he's like, hmm, there's a very minimal population on the planet anymore because of all the radiation, because there was such a huge battle. And then the planet just disappears eventually. Yeah, I was wondering how the military outcome led to the planet just disappearing. But that's neither here nor there. Other than, yeah, everything that they do just seems to make it worse. And one of those major things is John trying to get the general, who he he knows wants to make peace, get him back to his people to convince his army that they should make peace and let the nurses go. And the deal is the peacekeepers will be gone. It'll just be the women and children. 
And in that case, then there will be peace. And so he gets them to the wall. He's disguised them as one of the nurses. And the nurse you were talking about, the one who speaks, who was speaking with Dargo, right when he's about to jump, shoots him and kills him. And his body falls off the wall towards the army. So John is like, oh, no, you did not just do that. That was your one chance at peace. And you just killed him. And of course, mm-hmm. the nurse is like, you are a traitor. You are helping one of them escape to those people who are trying to kill us. What I love about this moment is it rises out of character motivation. Like it's not mm-hmm. a random shot. It is a deliberate action on the part of the nurse to kill him. That is follows the deliberate action of John to try and get him away without telling anyone. So I'm going to play the subsequent conversation where it's the standoff basically between the nurses and Aaron and Dargo and John. I ask again, are you part of his deception? No, Crichton's actions are his alone. Told us nothing. Hey, folks, I'm not the enemy here. Where's your killer? Not too much killing. No more killing. Stop the killing. Stop. It's worse, not better. It's more dead. What's he talking about? Uh, nothing. Just what will happen to us if we don't pull ourselves together? That guy you shot, he was their general. He wanted to offer you a ceasefire. I don't believe you. Why didn't you tell us anything? There wasn't time. Oh, like Frel there wasn't. And since when do you make decisions for me? Aaron, we get him back to his lines and this war is over. You know that. He's a liar! No! Don't kill anyone else, mother! So at the end there, the nurse's daughter is the one who saves John from getting his head blasted off by stepping in front of of her weapon. Mm -hmm. And, oh my God, Aaron is so livid with John for not telling her. Like, she probably would have gone along with it, but she would have made sure it was safe. You know, it was, it's one of those, mm-hmm. John, you idiot kind of moments, because they are absolutely right that he should have let them know what the plan was, because this whole thing came about because of his secrecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'm trying to give John motivation for even having that secrecy. And I'm like, the best I can come up with is that Aaron is pretty gung-ho weapons yay from the beginning of the episode. So maybe he thought that if he told her they had the general, the way that she would try and broker peace is through a prisoner exchange or through we have your general surrender, which he didn't think would work. So Mm -hmm. maybe that was what he was thinking. But the episode definitely doesn't really give us much to go on as to why John decided not to tell anybody. Yeah, I think of it more as everyone else is preoccupied with other things like Dargo is working with Stark to try and find the tear. Aaron is hanging out with Dason or Dakin trying to figure out him and kind of bonding with him. So they're all kind of like scattered all over the place. And he's just like, okay, I'm just going to do it. I don't think there was a lot of thought going on in John's head, honestly. Yeah. I don't know. It's just so sad because you feel like if this moment had been changed, maybe the entire outcome of the episode would have been changed. And you can Mm -hmm. take it back to John being at fault and the nurse being at fault and starting a sequence of events that that leads to the planet being like, I think this is the one where the planet, when we flash back to Moya, is now irradiated from nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. It's not good. It's upsetting. I don't know. And it's, I think that the nurse killing the general so easily almost. That was why I didn't think that maybe the hordes, the animosity towards the horde was as deserved, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're talking about how long lived the her species is versus his, it does really read kind of as like an elf and human thing. Mm -hmm. So as like, you know, the these like super long lived, like air quotes, peaceful creatures that, you know, think that they're above the other creatures. And they're like, 
that just level of disdain mm-hmm. almost. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, they the, the horde actually is portrayed as very much like bloodthirsty. And later on in the episode, we have a pretty gruesome scene of that. But at the same time, I was kind of like, okay, but you are not as sympathetic either you know <laughs> it's not in it and i i don't know that's what that's what farscape does really well too is it makes everything kind of crunchy you know yeah yeah no i definitely see your perspective on it and at the same time you can also have the reading of the nurse has been under siege with her fellow nurses for days they have seen their friends die they have seen their peacekeeper protection die she's traumatized this is the person that is trying to kill her so, yeah, she's going to kill him first, you know, before he gets her or gets back to his people to show them, tell them about their defenses. From a strategic point of view, he's a prisoner being let back with inside knowledge of their defense, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's that perspective, too, that this is she's on the other side of a conflict with him. Yeah. So anyway, immediately after that, the Venix shoot an arrow over the wall that is also a message. And the message is like, hey, we understand our general dying in battle. But the fact that you humiliated him by dressing him like a woman and then killing him, that's what really gets our grit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just kind of like to say shout out for misogyny in the future or the past or in other places other than Earth. And so John is tied up to the big monument statue. He's in chains. And we get this really great scene next of John trying to think about what to do to fix this situation that is so few bar that he is asking Harvey for help. And I just want to set the scene a little bit because you hear this harmonica playing and this is where the Western bit comes in and it's home mm-hmm. on the range and it pans across everybody doing their thing and then it gets to John and then you see these boots, their cowboy boots. And they say Andy on the bottom from Toy Story. And it's Harvey who is propped up playing the harmonica, providing the musical background for this, this scene because he is now visiting with John and explaining about time and how mm-hmm. do we fix this timeline. Mm-hmm. So shout out to Harvey. I just love him. This is only scene. I, did, I didn't clip it. But basically we get this, I think, something that becomes later thematically important for Farscape as a whole because they are going to deal with time more later on. Mm-hmm. in the season and the series but basically harvey's point is this you have messed up the timeline but time is elastic and not brittle so that means that you can get it back to more or less where it needs to be by fixing the major thing right so mm-hmm. as long as certain things happen things will mostly go back to the way they were and not mess up the entire universe with some sort of you know butterfly effect mm-hmm. and out of that comes a conversation about okay what's the thing that history has in common with this point in time well Dakin has to die that's basically what it comes down to well I mean I like Harvey's point because it does kind of envision time as like a river almost where you know if you drop a major river if you drop a Mm. boulder in the middle of this river time kind of wants to get back to how it was almost Mm -hmm. so John's point is that like he can kind of if he can find out the major important building blocks of the timeline, he can kind of nudge it back into place. Right. And it'll try and come back to where it was, which actually, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like this Harvey because this isn't the Harvey that's aggressive. And this isn't even the Harvey from self-inflicted wounds part two, you know, where he calls John in and then he's just being really mean and passive aggressive and kind of John's inner demon you know, John's inner dark side. This is the Harvey that's actually being helpful. This is the Harvey that bounces ideas off of with John. This is essentially a version of 
Scorpius that John could be friends with, you know, the fellow scientist, the fellow brilliant mind, Mm -hmm. you know, which is what makes Harvey kind of interesting to me in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, totally. The the coexistence of Harvey with John and how they actually come to depend on each other is one of my favorite things. Mm -hmm. And then Harvey declines to make a decision for John. He doesn't want to be blamed for it if it goes wrong. So he's like, John, you have to make the decision. And what follows is a conversation then between John and Aaron about what must be done. And I'm going to play that now. We can record a message over the one sent by Colonel Lennox. And now you have convinced Dagon into offering a complete and total surrender. It's the only way to save the nurses. Maybe. You want to better the odds? How? Scroll through that digi pamphlet you got at the Peace Memorial. Look for anything that may be out of sync that we can fix. What? Oh, what you think? I, I'm stupid that I don't understand what you're saying. Huh. Sub-Officer Dagan does not have to die. He's Davy Crockett at the Alamo. He stands on the wall and he takes one for the home team. I've thought about this. It's the only thing I can come up with to fix the timeline. Oh, you and your stupid timeline. Well, how do you think I want to do it? Think it's my first option? Read the history. It's in your pocket. If Grimes lives, he's a hero who averts a war. Dead, he's just another guy in the Laura Ashley Spring Collection. It's you and me now. We've got to do something. He's not a soldier. I know that. But the way history unfolds, that doesn't stop him from taking an arrow. So, Dacon dies. What about us? We're soldiers. We go back through the time tear. The tear? Stark says it's completely disappeared. What happens if it doesn't be show? Then we die half an hour after Dacon. Aaron, either way, he dies. That's what we have to play for now. I just love that conversation because it is so sad and it's full of so many hard choices. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, John is right. Like his point about either you have Dacon die and we fix the timeline and potentially save the nurses, or you keep him alive, the horde overruns us and we all die, including the nurses. And the way he says, like, mm-hmm. we got to play this for the nurses now. It's just brutal because it's it's every war movies like save one person, save all the group, you know, the sacrifice of one. What does that mean and how do you value life? Mm-hmm. And it's his reference to the Alamo brings that back, this last stand, this hopeless odds. I don't know. It's just I don't this this conversation is one of the crux of the episode for me because it's talking about death, it's talking about choices, it's talking about time. It brings mm-hmm. that all together. And at the end of the day, it's Aaron's decision. Like John is tied up. Aaron is the one in charge of that. And mm-hmm. and Aaron is the one who is in command and John is giving her his opinion on it, but she has to decide. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting that he initially approaches it as kind of like, oh, well, you know, maybe you should check and see if there's anything else we can change. Maybe like we could paint the walls a different color and that would fix it. You should go look, check your thing. And she's like, come on, John, like you don't like I'm not an idiot. Yeah. You know, I know what the I know what the history says. The other thing I want to mention is that this kind of brings to me a lot of Doctor Who. I was Mm. thinking about it kind of as this was going on, you know, the kind of save everybody or the unchangeable nature of fate Mm -hmm. or unchangeable nature of time kind of thing yeah 
And I think that what Farscape really struggles with is so often they're trying to save everybody or they try and do things to save themselves and it ends up getting people killed. And this is one of those few times when they're actually making a very, very conscious decision to kill someone. And I think in a lot of ways, this is the hardest decision they've had to make in a really long time. Mm -hmm. Because even Zan killing herself in in self-inflicted wounds, like... Like that was her making the choice and they all knew what the outcome was going to be, but she was conscious about it. Dacon doesn't know he's going to die. So he goes into this not knowing, but they know. Yeah. They set it up. Aaron takes him up to the wall. She even gives him a last out, like I'll throw it. You don't have to throw it so that she would be killed instead of him, but he demurs. And I think that is his moment of heroism, right? He's like, better mm-hmm. me than you because you are the commanding officer. So I'm going to go do this dangerous thing. It'll be fine. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to go do it. It'll be fine. And then Aaron says, you know, you are a hero. You're, a, you're, thank you for doing this. Your service will be remembered kind of thing. And he's, he's a little confused, doesn't know what it is, but he throws the message back and then he gets shot just like he's supposed to. And it really is this heavy moment of there is no twist to this. This one plays out straight. And the twist, I guess, is when we switch back to Moya and we see Chiana and Pilot saying, okay, so the planet disappeared. Yep. <laughs> so to the audience is like, oh no, what just happened? They tried to fix the timeline and everything is even worse off than it was before. Mm-hmm. So it ends up not working <laughs> because then there's another... Um, there's another massive affront in the day it, at daybreak, which is what the which is what the colonel promised. Mm-hmm. And at that point, when the peace offering is was rejected, Aaron is kind of like, "Okay, can we try it my way now?" <laughs> and her way is to shoot everything with yeah. their pulse pistols that work. So they free John and they go on like a shooting spree and she's like, try and make it seem like we've got a whole army back here. (laughs) That's one of the best lines of the episode. Make like an army. (laughs) So good. Yeah. And so that's what they end up doing. They end up, you know, pretend making like an army. And because they have superior weapons, because their pulse pistols um, are not jammed, they do massacre a whole lot of the Vedics and end up driving them off and into a retreat through them winning that battle ultimately is what changes and puts the timeline back on course. And mm-hmm. there's one thing that keeps popping up and it happens in the conversation that we just listened to. And it happens in the conversation where John is freed when Aaron tells the nurse who's protesting, Hey, he's a soldier. He can help us. And this the idea of John as a soldier that John mm-hmm. never questions in this episode. And I just find that so interesting because he's come so far from the scientist that he was at the beginning of season one and being like, I'm a scientist. I'm a damn scientist. I'm not a soldier. I'm not any of this. Let's talk it out. And yet here he embraces the soldier role that he is put in. He is pretending to be sub-officer Crichton. He doesn't dispute with the general when the general says you're a peacekeeper. He's come Mm -hmm. into that role of the soldier, of the fighter. And now it's like beyond the PTSD too. Like in season two, we talked about John being so traumatized from his experience with Scorpius in the Aurora chair that he was always about shooting first and asking questions later. And I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's healed fully, but he has, he's much less reactionary and more deliberate about it. So he's grown into this new, new person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've come a long way from the, I'm going to fill you with little bolts of yellow light (laughs) to like, 
you know, and we've we've definitely moved past the defensiveness of postseason one. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I don't know. Yeah, this is interesting. And then there is actually before we finish up and and wrap up, I, I wanted to go back for a second because before the Venix attack, Stark ends up having a conversation with the same nurse that killed the the general. And I, I wanna play that because it it I think gets at the heart of the episode and it gets at the heart of who Stark is, which is interesting to me. You deal with the dead. Someone must. Death is where my expertise ends. When you shot the general, how did you feel? I felt hatred. Fear. Fear is good. Keep that. But travel light. Forget hate. If we die, will I be with my daughter after? Different beliefs, different destinations. I cannot tell before the end. Should the worst befall, you will not be alone. Yeah, so Stark. Hmm. I, I like that because up until now, we haven't really gotten a good idea of what he does. We're just kind of like, oh, he helps people go into the afterlife, which kind of implied that there was one. But I really like this idea of different destinations. Mm-hmm. And I think it... I think that the title is referencing that very clearly, you know, just the different destinations, but it's also referencing the different destinations that each of their choices make on the future timeline. And I think it's just referencing in general what Farscape does. Do you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. it, the crew kind of comes in and they change things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I like that, you know, the other thing he offers her is get rid of your hatred. Keep your fear. Fear is healthy, but hatred is not. So, you know, this this whole conflict has arisen out of fear and hatred and her shooting the general was because she hated him at the same time. And how those choices lead you to different destinations, too, based on your emotions and your feelings. And I really mm-hmm. like that notion as well. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. The the fact that he is the one that's pointing out, you know, get rid of your hatred. I really like that because Stark has been dealt such a serious blow over the past couple of episodes. You know, he's lost the love of his life. He's had to help her cross over, which must have been horrible. Mm-hmm. And yet he is able to be that peaceful person that Zan would have wanted him to be. And he's able to offer some absolution while at the same time offering very very coherent advice you know and i don't know and also i i do like the idea of maybe stark letting go of his own hatred yeah because he has a whole lot of it i mean the whole liars guns and money arc is driven by his hatred of scorpius Mm -hmm. you know and and he still harbors that fear and hatred of the peacekeepers because he was their prisoner and he was tortured and you know it's a very legitimate reaction to that all but yet he recognizes that in order to move forward and to keep going he maybe has to let that go too mm-hmm. so yeah i mean this yeah. this episode man it's just like it's layers upon layers of meaning like i think everything has two meanings <laughs> that we mm-hmm. see you know you have the different destinations of the afterlife the different destinations of the timeline you have history being unbroken down and then built up again and mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to protect these people? What is the sacrifice? What is the cost? And it's just, 
it's so meaty. Like there's so many ways to think about all these different things and the implications for our our crew Mm -hmm. that make this such an excellent episode. Yeah. So they they make like an army. The Venix are driven off. And then John goes back and he promises the nurse that there will be peace now and she'll survive. And she just has to you know, tell them that the peacekeepers left and, and Aaron goes back and she puts the peacekeeper symbol back on Dakin's chest. Cause she'd had him take it off because it was a sniper. I mean, cause mm, he, it, was shiny. You know, it was a, it was shiny and it was also a peacekeeper symbol. It's, you know, it's the same reason that if you're a ranking officer and you're in a, and there are snipers around, you don't want to have your insignia on. I want to talk for a quick second about the peacekeeper, um, the 500 year old peacekeeper uniforms. Mm hmm. Because it really did feel kind of like a step up from Xena wear. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Which actually made it feel kind of cool. Because, you know, now peacekeepers are all kind of plasticky and hyper-militarized. But this, this, I think the fact that they were all using primitive weapons and that the peacekeepers were basically in, you know, Xena armor made it feel like Farscape had gone back to Xena. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they'd gone back to the past and were, really were at a different level than they were before. Mm-hmm. Though they did have pulse weapons, they just didn't work because of the jamming signal. Yeah. So the crew finds the tear again because with their repelling the the dawn assault, they are able to get back through the tear into the present. The ship has returned. And so that's where we leave them. And we find out what happens because they're back at the memorial. Only now it's not a peace memorial. It's a death memorial of the nurses because they ended up all dying. And we kind of get a little bit of exposition between Chiana and who's telling Aaron what's going on, their perspective from Moya, which is kind of nice to see the two of them have a conversation. And John is just devastated. He's sitting on the ground holding sand and running it through his hand and the, you know, the sands of time, right? Mm-hmm. When Chiana asks who's going to get Aaron or who's going to get John back to the ship and Aaron says, I will. And so they sit John is devastated and we see through the mask thing what happened and because the general was dead because they think the peacekeepers were still there the horde kills the nurses and they were all slaughtered but there was no further consequences beyond that so the time stream did get back on track it was just at the slightly altered course of this event was altered because of the presence of of our Moya crew Mm-hmm. It's a hard ending for everybody. Yeah. Because all these people that they'd spent a couple days getting to know and, you know, interacting with are now dead, which they would have been anyway, because it was 500 years ago. But yeah, but it's like, you know, it's like reading a biography sometimes and you know, the person is dead, but you know that they're going to get assassinated or killed mm-hmm. or something. And you're just like, oh, like Hamilton, right? You know, yeah. Hamilton's going to die before you go in. But watching that scene or hearing that scene is so hard because you care about it. And it's that same mm-hmm. sort of relationship they've developed with these people that they've met and they learned about and they knew in the past. And mm-hmm. even though they're dead, long dead, you know, it's still, that's still hard. Yeah. Like inevitability kind of feeling. Yeah. The other thing um, I want to mention before we completely wrap up is so Rigel and Chiana and then eventually Jewel are on the ship, but initially it's just Rigel and Chiana And Chiana is walking around looking for Rigel because Dargo had calmed and been like, Rigel, what's the progress? And 
Chiana was like, uh, it's me. It's okay. Things are going. And then she's looking for Rigel to be like, what are you up to? And they have a really interesting moment between the two of them. Oh. What are you doing in Zan's quarters? You know why I'm here. Same reason as you. And why am I here? <laughs> to steal whatever's left. Yeah. That's right. Well, we're sensible, you and me. Leaving this to rot won't bring Zan back. No. You can have whatever you find. I don't want it. No. Neither do I. Oh. Yeah, they want to steal her stuff, but they actually really don't want to steal her stuff. You know, for these two, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. When you can kind of see just on like, and Chiana's face, she's like, you. she's gone to Zan's quarters and you can tell that she's, she's asking Rigel essentially like, why am I here? Like, you tell me mm-hmm. why I'm here because she knows she's there to mourn Zan. Yeah. But she's like, and then when Rigel's like, you're here to steal, just like me. She's like, okay, yeah, that that sounds like something I would do. Yeah. yeah maybe yeah. that's why I'm here. But then, like, both of them realize that they don't want to. No. They're there to remember Zan and, and try and get comfort from from what's left of her things. And, you know, the other really kind of meta thing that's it's kind of hard is... You know, in Liars, Guns, and Money Part 2, Zan's quarters was once that was burned because to get rid of the the little gold bug things. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like this, the destruction of Zan's room was like the foreshadowing of Zan's death. And then so mm-hmm. you walk in or Chiana walks into Zan's quarters and like the walls are black and charred and melted and her things are destroyed. And it's just like this accumulation of destruction and loss of Zan and her possessions and every memory that they have of her is, is dark, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 And I mean, anything that even makes Rigel pause in his stealing is, you know, sad. Yeah. I guess the one last note I want to mention, we didn't talk about it much, but Dargo ends up connecting with the nurse's daughter, who's probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And she's worried about, dying obviously and not being remembered and Dargo's really good with her he's like just make your mark on the wall so he gives her his knife and she carves her name onto the wall and he goes and finds it 500 years later when they when they return to the present Mm -hmm. because this episode that's the other thing about it right is it's it's about death and remembrance and how do we remember those who've died and how do the stories about them change over time and Mm -hmm. as I said really meaty stuff about every single aspect of it yeah yeah and especially that as how that relates to Zan Mm -hmm. given what she meant to the crew because I think in self-inflicted wounds we got a really clear idea of what Zan was to the crew which was you know priestess mother confidant you know the level head in a room full of hotheads yeah and so yeah I think that kind of making that that connection that even after death you will still have this link to the, you know, you'll still have link to the people that died. You know, that, Mm -hmm. that really felt true for Zan also that, that even though she's gone, her presence on this series cannot be understated. Right. Right. She is an integral part of it. I mean, 
even though she's only part of it for half the show, two seasons and a little bit, she is still a huge part of their lives and they will carry her forward. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So yeah, that's the episode. So what would you give it? This one's a five for me because just the deep layered meanings that can be taken and the interpretations you can have, and it just fits all together so very well. Like this one just hits me every single time I watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would go with you there, like a 4.5 or a five for me also. It's strong. It's one of their stronger episodes, especially this early in the season. Mm -hmm. I mean, and especially coming off the heels of self-inflicted wounds, because, you know, I've said that I think self-inflicted wounds, if you kind of like mash them together, I feel like that's a really high rating episode for me. But I feel like this is like a good, good standalone episode. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those, you know, on the heels of self-inflicted wounds in that context. It's like you might expect, like, trying to lighten the tone or or bring some hope back to the show. But no, Farscape just kicks you while you're down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, oh, we had just had this one tragedy and in trying to feel better about it, we have this other tragedy. Yeah, Farscape is definitely like, you want to feel bad? I'll show you what it's like to feel <laughs> bad. <laughs> oh, show. Uh, love you. So next week we have Eat Me, mm-hmm. which definitely is a change of tone. <laughs> yeah, that's an episode that happens. <laughs> if you would like to get in touch with us, we are Farscape Friday Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Tumblr and Dreamwith, and we're Farscape Friday on Twitter. Yeah, feel free to email us with your different destination related feelings, and we will see you next week. Bye bye.